Andrew Youngblood joins us today to talk about classical education. He has helped found more than 30 classical Catholic high schools. That's amazing in itself. And he is currently head of Regina Luminous Academy in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Uh, he has a new book out with Word on Fire Press called Know Thyself, Classical Catholic Education and the Discovery of Self. That's our topic today. Welcome, Headmaster Youngblood. Thank you so much. You begin with the Oracle of Delphi. It's right there in, in your title. What was the full meaning of the command above the entrance? Yeah, a lot of people associate the title Know Thyself with Socrates and Plato. And although it is something that they spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about, uh, originally it, it goes back to the Oracle of Delphi. It was an inscription above this temple to Apollo where people would go to request guidance from the Oracle, the Pythia. Um, and I think it's really telling that for, right from the get-go in our exploration of the, the genesis of Western education, that we have this combination between education and intellectual pursuit, and then also this, uh, this fuller sense of pilgrimage, this religious sense of um, the aspect of formation of the whole person. The formation of the whole person, that's a, a phrase, the full, the full self, no thyself through and through as far as one can. That doesn't really go along with what we read in, in say, Common Core or many state standards. Uh, that puts you a little out of the mainstream, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah. Very comfortably well outside of the mainstream because Common Core self-admittedly is about, uh, you know, college, getting into a good college so that you could be, have so that you can have job preparedness. And ultimately, if you dig deeper, what it's about is financial freedom. And uh, yeah, I, I, as, a, as a headmaster, as a teacher, I just reject that wholeheartedly. I, I, I'm not invested in the lives of my students so that I can get them ready for some, some job. You know, what happens if they're unemployed? I, yeah. I need to form the whole person and I need to work with them so that they can understand what it means to be a fully developed and a fully free person. And that's what the liberal arts are, right? The arts that make us free and not just financially free, but free so that we can give ourselves completely to others and ultimately to God. Yeah. You know, having founded so many schools, encountered many parents leaving the public schools and looking for the classical education, is that awareness of the excessively utilitarian aspect of public secular education clear in their minds? Is that one of the motivations for them to come to you? So I, th I think this is why the, the secular mindset is, is so insidious, right? Because it's, it's, it permeates so much of society. So I find even my fully formed uh, families who really understand the, the purpose of education in the full Catholic sense, they still have this sort of worry in them about, you know, where's my kid going to college? Will they get a good job? So actually, even when I'm recruiting for uh, classical education, the first thing I do with parents is I, I have them sit down because it, it's quite a shock when you are doing a, an interview for a new school and to have the head of the school say, look, I'm not here to get your child ready for college. That's, 
that's a bold thing to say and it's a difficult thing yeah. to receive because it's it's just part of our modern american psyche that you know you need to go to a good college you need to get a good job and basically again it, it comes down to because you need to make money and i say right. you can't reduce a child to a college acceptance letter or a job or a career those things are important but they're actually not the most important aspects of our lives in terms of our relationships in terms of our faith in terms of our vocation so who's preparing them for that? And that's what I think that classical education does. Yeah, I mean, for decades now, it's been achieve, achieve, achieve. And it's a drumbeat that, I, I mean, as a, as, a, as a kid, you know, the, the high achiever kids, it must just be exhausting sometimes to constantly feel, I got to perform. I got to think about the next level. I got to think five years ahead. I mean, you know, ease up. Will you take, be reflective. You know, let, let's read some of the Psalms, okay? Something like, anyway, so you, you begin your discussion of the definition of Catholic classical education with a contextual fact. More people are unaware of how much secular education, public schools, has changed in the last 20 years. Parents, parents who went to school, public school in, in 1985, 1990, 1995 even, they think it's kind of still the same, don't they? Yeah, it's one of the hardest parts about explaining the difference between um, classical education and common core education or secular education. The fact that, um, you know, there are a lot of, before before the 1900s, all education was classical education. There was no classical education. There was just education. And yeah. then slowly there, there's this modern trend towards changing education and not understanding the purpose of education. But it still remains... Um, you, you can still discover aspects of classical education, even in you know private education and in some of the the Catholic settings. So people just don't have a clear understanding of what has happened to education in um, the last 10, 20 years. And I think that that's important for people to realize so that they can start this journey of a fuller appreciation of what education could be for their children. And and it's more the changes are more than just the well publicized issues about race and sex, you know, getting down into the elementary grades. There's more to it than that. Oh yeah, it's it's really the mentality. There's a utilitarian aspect to modern education, and one of the things that the book does it provides small vignettes that that chronicle the history of education. And as we um, divorced ourselves from the Christian understanding of the human person and the secular anthropology started to develop, um, you can chronicle how the more secular we became, the less we understood what education was for. And there's this uh, this shocking panel that ha that met in the, the early 20th century. And they said, you know, that the whole purpose of the commission was what what are we even doing in education? And they came up with some guidelines, but they basically came to a conclusion of like, we're not really sure. And that's because the secular mindset, the secular anthropology, the, the understanding of the human person as as just utilitarian, it, it doesn't really explain why you have to study calculus, right? This is the this is the 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 talking point that you always see when when you're in a public school setting, the kids will complain. Well, why am I studying history? Why am I studying a foreign language? Why am I studying calculus? Yeah. And as a classical educator, I'm always interested to see what the teachers are going to say when they're in the public setting, because they don't really have an answer for that. 
And right. usually the answers that they start to give really start to sound like classical education, right? Like the development of the whole person, knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And I'm kind of listening to it and thinking, hey, wait, that's that's us. That's that's not what you guys are about. So I think kids understand the duplicity that's that's inherent within an education system that has some remnants of a liberal arts education, and at the same time, an education that proclaims and professes to be solely utilitarian and really about um, job preparedness. Yeah. One of the first principles of Catholic classical is an integrated curriculum. What is integration here and what, why is that so important? So knowledge and truth is one. And our experience of the world is an experience where we can come to knowledge of the truth. And that all points in the direction of Jesus Christ. So it's very important that when we are teaching the subjects, you know, kids go, they experience these multiple subjects, various subjects throughout the day, that they see that it is connected, that there is a that there is a math to their music and that there is a connection between their geometry and their history. And one of the beautiful things that you can do, which is wildly successful in classical education, is to create a narrative arc. So, for example, in ninth grade, you could take ancient history as your starting point. That's what I point to in the book. And then all of the classes norm themselves. So the kids are doing their poetry, they're doing their literature, they're doing their history, they're doing their theology, they're doing their philosophy, they're doing their math, they're doing their science, and it all norms itself to the ancient world. And then you get this symphonic effect where they're hearing the same truth, but in different modalities, as it were, and they start to see the connection. And when you can do that, it becomes so much more exciting. It becomes like a story for the students. And it's like they're hearing chapter one in one class and they're hearing chapter two in another class and they start putting it all together. And there's some really exciting moments that happen throughout the course of a class or throughout the course of a unit or a year where these arcs come together and they make the connections. Yeah. And it's and rather than class being something that they have to survive or, or undergo, they can be very excited by the the classroom setting and what's happening in the discussion. Yeah, yeah, very good. You say that the largest factor in educational success in educating a student is, quote, student mindset, not not skill, skill level, not even the, the, the content knowledge, but the mindset of, of the student. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, there's studies that show that the, the biggest factor is this ability to prepare yourself for class and the, the willingness to do well. So one of the things, especially when you're dealing with high school students, but this reaches far down also, you really have to understand that students are dealing with a lot. And the baggage that they bring to the classroom experience is something that you need to um, unpack with them. And help them understand in the context of what they're learning. So if you could have a student who's willing to learn, who's willing to, we talk a lot about that grit, right? That grit factor, that they're willing to take obstacles and see them as opportunities. Um, that has a that has a tremendous impact. But that's education in general, right? On the flip side of that, what, what can we as educators do to inspire the students, to engage the students? And things like Socratic um, seminar are, really important, I feel, in providing students with a voice and showing them that we care about what they have to say. Yeah. You give a lot, you, you mentioned the journey 
in reference to know thyself. And we have lots of examples that you cite of individual growth being represented by uh, a journey, Dante, uh, obviously. Do you, in your schools, explicitly communicate to every student, you are on a journey? You're on a journey. And education is, is a big part of your individual journey. Is that out there? It is. And actually, we phrase it a little bit differently. We, we talk about a relationship, right? So it's, it's very interesting that in a lot of classical schools, the professed vision of the school is not really academic. Uh, you know, a lot of us have as our vision and our mindset that we want to bring the kids into encounter with Jesus Christ. And to, to, it's not just a journey, it's a relationship. It's not just a pilgrimage. It's, it's entering into the life of the Trinity that's already within the students. And for them to discover that and unpack that, there's a, there's a shift in the mindset, right? Kids go to school and they learn stuff. But when you can plug them into their relationship with Jesus Christ, when you can have them draw from that source, then they will never settle for mediocrity. And this is what John Paul II said over and over and over. You know, they don't want mediocrity. They want greatness. And they will look for and strive for greatness in the classroom when they understand it as part of their personal vocation and a way of expressing their love for Jesus Christ. Yeah. Let me step out of the book for a moment and ask about your vast experience in starting classical schools, which included, as you said a moment ago, talking with lots of parents uh, and how they, they sort of bring in utilitarian attitudes. Uh, how long does it take for them to be converted? Well, it's uh, the easiest way to convert them is for them to know someone who's already in the program. When they see the students undergo this transformation and this shift where they're excited about education, where they are growing spiritually, um, then they get on board very quickly. Some of them are on board to begin with. They just don't understand the content of, of what is being done in the classroom. So as soon as they see the students coming home and uh, <laughs> I get this a lot from parents, right? When they come in for a parent-teacher conference, they're like, oh, Mr. Youngblood, my child talks about what they learn in class every day, right? So um, when, when the discussion at the dinner table can be taken over by what the students are excited to share with their family, um, then I, the parents are sold, right? The, the, I mean, what more can you want for your child in the realm of education than where they feel like they are growing spiritually, that they're excited about what they're learning? Um, and very quickly, once that starts to happen, the parents are just not just fully on board, but just really grateful for what's happening in the classroom. They feel like we are taking care of the whole child, and that is our mission. Yeah. This is a tricky question. Uh, I mean, you, you, you do not wish to see classical education in, in relation to college and workplace readiness. You don't want that utilitarian attitude toward themselves. Uh, then again, you may not, I mean, the first impulse may be to say, wait a minute, what we do is going to make them better college students, that they're, they're going to be more careful readers, they're going to be better, better thinkers. But if, if, we, if we really take this classical approach, Catholic approach seriously, is that reflective temperament that classical instills 
including that full orientation toward our Lord. Is that in conflict with many academic and workplace settings? Um, I don't know that I would say that it's in conflict. I think it gives the students a broader context and it gives them a framework. We talk a lot about meta-awareness, right? So if we've gone in philosophy through a whole journey of chronicling the, the Christian mindset, the development of the Christian mindset, the development of the secular mindset, if, if we've laid that out for the student and we can point in literature and various forms of literature, hey, this is doing this, right? This, this person, the, the Great Gatsby is written because it's reflective of this philosophy. Frankenstein was written because it's reflective of this philosophy. Then they start to have the ability to stand above the conversation. And when they see things, they can say, oh, this is reflective of, of that. I'll give you a, a, a rather trite example. When Dan Brown came out with the, the Da Vinci Code or whatever that was so many years ago, you know, people were like, oh, is this true? Is this true? And before I was in administration, I was a theology teacher. So I had so many people asking me. And, you know, it's just it's pseudo Arianism. So when a student can say encounter something like that and, and not be thrown off by it, but just like, oh, no, that's pseudo Arianism, then it immediately allows them to uh, not be thrown off, not be confused by various trends that that develop, right? They, they stand above the fray in that sense. And I think that those are really critical. That meta-awareness is critical in, in the success of classical education. We often see t um, results with our students that far exceed the norm. And that's interesting as a data point because, I, I mean, not that long ago, I just said that we're not concerned with college preparedness. So, you know, how do you square those two? And I think that the success that we see in classical settings come from the fact that um, we are focused on the whole person, but because we are helping them intellectually form themselves through this study of philosophy, through this meta-awareness, that they tend to do phenomenally well um, in outpacing others in terms of their progress. In education, we don't talk about, you know, where you are, if you're the 85th percentile or 50th percentile, that's not that important. It, the important is how much progress have you made? How much have we been able to help you develop? And we see in classical settings in terms of remediation and in terms of strong students. I had one year, um, I was looking at the PSAT. The kids took the PSAT in ninth grade. They got their scores and then they took the PSAT in 10th grade. And I was at a school at the, at the time where we had about 250 sophomores. So I had a program with about 25, so I had 10% of the class. So if you do the math, then I should have, you know, one person in the top 25. I had four in the top 10. And so the administration was like, well, how is this possible? You had students who were showing four years of growth on the PSAT from ninth grade to 10th grade. Students who were very strong, becoming even stronger. Students who were very weak in terms of needing remediation, who then also showed four years of growth. How is that possible that you had this differentiated learning environment and so much success? And I think it goes back to the philosophy, to this integrated learning, to the respect that we have for the student um, in classical settings, and this meta-awareness that I keep talking about, you know, helping them understand what is happening in the learning journey itself. Uh, and there may be another factor that will bring up, you note the, quote, chronic insecurity that many teens suffer from today. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, out there, some depression, 
and just a lack of confidence, uncertainty about themselves and the world. And you actually say the Socratic discussion pedagogy helps with that very much. How is that? How is that so? It's, it's one of the things that really surprised me about classical education, because I, I had gone through and I went to a, a, a classical college, and so I had experienced it, and there was a healing effect. But when I became a teacher, obviously we were doing the Socratic seminar, but there's something unsaid about Socratic seminar that's, that, that tells the student what you have to say matters, that, that you matter, that you have a voice. It's, it's very subtle. And at the same time, I would see over and over again that the Socratic seminar itself would have a healing effect on the students. We talk a lot about the transformative and healing effect of the transcendentals, um, the metaphysical worldview, how that helps students heal and become whole. Um, but the Socratic seminar itself, it's really, it's a beautiful thing to see. And when they are very excited and when they are engaged in their learning process, and at the same time that you see that they are becoming more fully themselves, you, you see it in their face, right? That there's a relaxation that happens and they're less tense. And you, you get these kids in ninth grade and they're so much worry, so much difficulty. And then by 12th grade, there's just a joy that um, that is inherent within them. And it's beautiful to be part of that journey with them. It's really an honor. Yeah. Here's a curriculum question. With classical Catholic education oriented to Jesus Christ, how does the, the classroom, the syllabus, the teacher address the pagan world? Well, first of all, I mean, you could say that the pagan world comes to us already through a Christian filter, right? So the, the early Christian world is the one who recorded pagan literature for us. So in hmm. a certain sense, there's already been a filter there. But the reason that people in the early Christian world looked back to the pagans um, is because you see this longing for Jesus Christ, even though they didn't have a vocabulary apparent in um, the stories and in the work they were doing. So one of the vignettes in the book is about the Iliad. And most people, when you say the Iliad, if they've read it, they think that it's about the Trojan War or the Trojan horse, Achilles and the Achilles heel. So it's very surprising when we start the Iliad to tell the students, yes, this has the backdrop of the Trojan War, but this has nothing to do with the Trojan War. This is about one man who's experiencing rage, and he experiences different types of love, you know, the love of Eros, the love of Philia, the love of Agape. And really what he's looking for is uh, something or someone to heal him of this rage that he's locked in like he can't get out of it on his own and everything he tries to get out of this rage just makes him more angry and it's really the story of the iliad is the story of someone on the bad guys team right so i mean this is a greek poem written for the greeks by a greek but the hero of the story is on the trojan side it's hector who's this noble man who did not commit any crime, but is sent by his father, his loving father, to die for the sin of someone else, his brother. And it's in the death of Hector that causes Hector's dad to go to Achilles and beg for Hector's incorrupt body to, to bring it back to bury it. And in that moment of seeing the love of a father who knowingly sent his son to die for the sin of someone else, that's the moment in book 24 
when Achilles' anger abates. Just for a brief moment, but he he is reminded of the love of his own father, and he is reduced to tears. And he releases the body of Hector, his sworn enemy, and Priam takes it back. Priam is Hector's father, the king of Troy. He takes it back to Troy, and the book actually ends with the burial of Hector. And the Eucharistic overtones in the burial of Hector, it, it shocks the students. I've sat there and watched them argue amongst themselves how hmm. Mr. Younglet has to be wrong that this book, there's no way that it could be written 800 BC. This has to be written later on because it's just, it, it's Eucharistic, the, the last page of, of the Iliad. So when you talk about how do we address the pagans, it's, it's the same way that we address the moderns, right? In the pagans, we see this longing for Jesus Christ. And in the moderns, we see this longing for a wholeness that they have lost, that they have rejected. And so everything that uh, humanity produces, we can see how it fits into this arc of Christian anthropology, this, this revelation, this understanding of the human person and Jesus Christ gives it to us, or um, in terms of secular anthropology, how it shows us and demonstrates to us what happens when we reject Christ's vision of the human person. So that happens for the ancients, it happens uh, in the medievals, and it happens in the moderns too. Yeah. Uh, as you move toward your conclusion, you, you turn to Pope John Paul II, who, who believed in classical and experienced classical Catholic education. And you think that classical approaches are most consonant with Catholic doctrine. So why aren't all Catholic schools classical? Why did some dioceses go in with Common Core? Well, you'd have to ask them. But if they are if they are not happy with the results, and there are a lot of nationwide tra- trends, even in Catholic schools, that I think should give them pause, uh, you know, just give me a call because I love starting classical schools. <laughs> so um, I think that uh, there are many bishops who are approaching uh, classical institutions like um, the Institute for Classical Liberal Education, Chesterton Schools Network, and asking them, hey, how can we implement this? diocesan-wide, not just as one program or one school, but how can we incorporate classical learning or classical vision or classical curriculum into our schools? And I think that it's the right direction. Um, There's Pew Research that was done a few years ago, and Brandon Vaught from Word on Fire has analyzed that. But I think right now the current trend is if you go to public education, uh, through public education, it's about 26% of students who remain Catholic um, by the time that they're 18. And if you go to uh, Catholic schools, that number is a little bit better, but it's really 36% if I'm remembering the numbers correctly. So, you know, that's not a success story. If we have Catholic education, four years of Catholic education or 12 years of Catholic education, and um, 64% of people are falling away um, from the faith by the time that it finishes, that's not a success story. No. Um, and and we we know that we have more to offer them in terms of personal formation and personal growth in, in through classical education. So I, you know, for anyone who's out there who wants to incorporate some elements, please give me a call. Give the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education. There's um, uh, Catholic Academic Press. There's so many resources available to people now yeah. um, to incorporate classical. And Mark, this is really one of the things that I wanted to hit home with the book is that, you know, there was a time where classical education was niche. 
and it was really for you know homeschool or very select few select community um and it was it was something on the margin and i think classical education has moved beyond that now and yeah. it's something that's ready for prime time and i i think it's a need that exists and my goal in the book was to make it accessible to non-academics right a lot of when you talk to people about classical education it gets pretty academic pretty philosophical pretty fast so i wanted the book to be accessible to the soccer moms to the dads in the quarter zips and the polos right it, it, there's a there's a section in there it says no bow ties required because you know there's a this this stereotype of the classical educator with a bow tie and a leather yeah. armchair and a and a bookcase behind them and we want to bring it out to the soccer fields. We want we want to bring it out to the parishes. We want to bring it to everyone because it is so enriching for the students. And it's something that we need to move beyond, uh, you know, dialectical discussions about this and that it, and really focus on what's good for the student. And we know this is good for the student. This helps educate them better. And it also brings them to Christ. And it's and it's not expensive to implement. So yeah. why not? We we need more bishops to to hear from you, uh, Andrew. For now, the book is Know Thyself, Classical Catholic Education and the Discovery of Self. Andrew Youngblood, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.